welcome to A Novel Evening. I'm Danny. You can find me over on Instagram as A Novel Evening Podcast and over on TikTok under the same name. And for this week's episode, I am joined by Victoria Gosling to talk all about her newest novel, Bliss and Blunder, which takes the legend of Arthur and Guinevere, brings it into a modern setting with all sorts of twists and turns inspired by the myth. Uh, It's unlike any retelling I think I've ever read. Um, I have so many questions for Victoria about this book um, and I cannot wait to see what she's going to bring to her novel evening. So a massive hello to Victoria. Hello. Hello, Danny. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. Um, it's, I think my book's going to be published in about a week and a half now. So I've got a little bit of nerves, you know, happening. Um, but it's my second book. And so uh, I feel definitely less anxious than, than last time. Oh, and you're away at the moment. You're in sunny Wales. I don't think I've sunny, seen Sunny Gower, yeah. So, uh, yeah, only about six inches of rain so far. So, uh, no, I love it down here. And it's got a real magic to it, this, this, um, this part of the UK. And I think it's a really good place to kind of come and take a little breath before, um, before publication day. Before all the chaos starts. Absolutely. And, you know, and firstly, I have my copy of Bliss and Blunder. It's gorgeous. I know listeners can't see it, but I'll be sharing lots of pictures. How much, you know, did you get involved with this cover? Because I love the art. Thank you. I did get quite involved with it because um, I think I think cover art is, for me, it's so important. And I love the, you know, physical experience of, of holding a book and, and um, especially with the hardcover, which is, you know, it's a little bit of an investment for people yeah. compared to a paperback. They're less disposable. So I really wanted a beautiful cover. And Serpent's Tale are so cool. They're like the coolest publisher ever. And they were very kind. And they let me look at a few different designs. Um, we didn't come close to anything at the beginning. Um, so they said, why don't you send us a load of images that you like and you feel connected uh, with? And one the um, cover there is Lady Lilith by... Um, Dante Gabriel Rossetti um, and um, that was one of the images I sent them and I said can you just put a mobile phone in her hands and put like a really big disco font on the front and they're like yeah we can and then that was the one we all loved I think so so I'm and I'm really lucky that that particular image was um, available so it was uh, part of you know there's a creative commons image I could use without um, having to pay an absolute fortune. (laughs) It's such a cool cover. And if anyone listening, first and foremost, tell us a bit about Bliss and Blunder. Tell us what the story is. Well, the the cover image is of Lady Lilith, as I've said, which is uh, Dante Gabriel Rossetti. And I wanted um, one of the pre-Raphaelites because they're very much connected to Arthuriana to me. So um, Bliss and Blunder, it's a retelling um, of the Arthurian legend, but it's set in the present day. So Arthur is in fact, um, he's a tech billionaire and uh, Guinevere or Gwen, uh, his wife is kind of an Instagram influencer. And it's set in the Wiltshire town of Avery um, where Arthur has his business headquarters. So he's kind of, he kind of rules the roost in, in rules the roost in, um, in Avery. Um, and all the characters I found, so Galahad is a non-binary hacker and Mordred in the original, who is the, you know, he's the bad guy in the original, he's um, Gwen and Arthur's adopted son. And then we have secondary characters like Lancelot and Gareth and Gawain, the knights. And the knights fall into two categories, actually. Some of them are kind of tech bros, 
who work for Arthur and some are former soldiers. So both Wayne and Lance served in Afghanistan and uh, they've come home from uh, military service, both with a few issues, shall we say. Yeah. And what was it that firstly inspired you to take on this legend? Because it's been retold in so many different forms. You know, there's a lot of YA, there's fantasy, there's, you know, there's probably horror retellings, there's straight up sort of historical fiction. What firstly inspired you to tackle this? And then what was it that got you to bring it into modern day? Um, I think I was inspired. Um, I had an idea for a, a second novel and I was discussing it with my agent and she sort of felt maybe the time wasn't quite right for that one. And she said, I love the setting of Wiltshire in your first. Do you have anything more you'd like to say about that? And I thought about it. And then I was beginning to start writing really around the time of, of the first lockdown. Um, and I was looking at, I, live in, I lived in Berlin for 14 years up to quite recently. And I'd come home to go to a writing residency in a Scottish castle and lockdown happened and then the borders shut and I got stuck at mum and dad's. And I was looking out um, their back kitchen window up, up at, they live in Wiltshire on the, on the edge of the downs at an old earth fort. And I was called Liddington Castle. And I had a look online and it said, this is rumored to be the site of Arthur, Arthur's penultimate battle. And as the, the traffic stilled and the, you know, the skies emptied of planes, I kind of looked at it and I had this kind of sense of time sort of not stopping so much as all time being present, which is a line I think from an Eliot poem from Four Quartets. Um, and I just had this feeling of looking at it and I kind of remembered there's a prophecy that Arthur will come again when his people need him most. And I thought, well, if any time is right, it's kind of now yeah. and where is he? And then I, I thought about that and I thought about the kind of power that Arthur Pendragon has in the original legends. And I'd read Mallory at university, who is, I think for me, sort of the great retelling, retelling, because even then it was a retelling, you know, these stories started, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago with oral storytellings. And then um, around the early med medieval time, um, they started to be written down in great volume. Um, and the Mallory was what I was familiar with from university. And then, in my first book, I'd written a lot about tech, but kind of about tech in a very personal way in the, the way that um, it had impacted on me, I think, in terms of the way I viewed the world and the sort of massive impact of social media and how that changed the way we lived. And also things about the addictiveness of, um, of the internet and the impact of the 24 hour news cycle and on our jobs and on our isolation and kind of connectivity. And I'd written about that quite length, I think in, in my first book, which was called Before the Ruins. And this time I wanted to write a bit more about the industry as a whole. And some of the, you know, a huge amount of power in a very short amount of time has been concentrated in the hands of largely white um, middle-class um, men um, and the industry is very male heavy um, and there have been quite a few scandals um, about the way that um, the industry sometimes treats women. Yep. Um, for, you know, there's women who are working within the industry and also it can be quite hostile towards women. And what happens um, if you end up in an environment that where there's a huge amount of capital and power concentrated um, in the hands of very few. So I wanted to explore that 
and I wanted to write also the story that I'd always loved because I think as a kid I read anything that had a knight and a sword in it and I loved Mallory and I loved T.H. White who wrote The Once and Future King um, and Tennyson's Idols of the King these were all sort of texts I sort of maybe touched on at university or through my own reading and I went back to them um, but I was actually quite ignorant of um, sort of the YA um, and other retellings I knew there'd been was it something of the mists Avalon in the you know, I knew that one was I've never read it um, I knew that was around in sort of the 90s but I think that since I've written Bliss and Blunder I've really noticed um, quite a few books have come out in this last year particularly yeah. um yeah so um but I think the the good thing about the Arthurian canon is it's so broad I mean I started trying to read all the medieval versions of Arthur you know Arthur and there's I couldn't get anywhere near it there's wow. always been room for more tellings it's very generative so um yeah. I didn't worry about it too much in the end was it ever intimidating to you to take on this myth? Because obviously people have such a strong image of Arthur and Guinevere and and I know you're taking a, a spin on it, but was it ever kind of intimidating to know, you know, people are already going to have their preconceived notions before they read the story based on what they know about King Arthur? Did that ever kind of cross your mind? Um, not really, because when I started looking into it, I realised that there were so many versions already and they were so different. So in some of the early tellings, People like Kay, who we perhaps know as Arthur's brother, who's always been, you know, even in, in Mallory, he's always kind of a bit of a job's worth and he he, li he likes to vaunt himself and he's always kind of coming a cropper. But in earlier tellings, Kay was actually the hero. So, and there's another telling where Guinevere, um, in fact, not only is unfaithful with Lancelot, but actively conspires against Arthur. <laughs> so... There are so many versions out there that I felt, in fact, that was kind of more power to my elbow that I could tell it in my own way. And that's sort of the note that the um, the book ends on. It actually ends up with, if you don't like it, you can tell it your own way. Um, and I think people always will, because it's it's like the Odyssey or um, the Greek myths. It's such a great story. And there's so many ways of looking at that central story. But what really surprised me was when I went to talk to people um, sort of while I was writing it, how few people know very little about the story at all. I thought, well, everyone knows um, Gwen and Arthur and Lance and their kind of deal. And everyone must know. And people were sort of like, no, they knew the sword in the stone. They'd heard of Merlin and Arthur. But after that, a lot of people get very vague. My dad confused Arthur with um, Alfred the Great. So I think... Oh. <laughs> I think some people like know, know like an awful lot, and there's other people who kind of a bit a bit uh, sketchy on the whole the whole legend. And who was your favourite character to get to play with? Who did you have the most fun with, devising this whole different life for them? Well, Morgan Le Fay is um, plays a big role in, in my novel, but to be honest, and and I absolutely love writing Morgan because. I feel in a lot of the earlier tellings, particularly the female characters, particularly Guinevere, they get really short shrift. Um, yeah. So it felt like a certain kind of revenge to, to be able to uh, to give them more space, more room and hear what they had to say. And it it, it kind of leapt off the page. But um, I'd also say that the bad guys are always the most fun to write. So there's a few bad guys in mind. There's a couple who you maybe 
start off thinking, oh, that's a bad guy, and then maybe it's not. I'd say Mo, Gwen and Arthur's bad boy son, is was a real pleasure to write. He, he gets up to all kinds of stuff. And he's got the best, I think, one-liners uh, throughout. So I think my sympathies tend to lie with um, young people, and I think they tend to lie maybe with um, maybe sort of people who've been, I feel, sort of painted painted you know badly yeah. in some of the versions like in particularly Tennyson like Guinevere is like to blame for everything you know her kind of lust and you know it's it's the ruin of the whole empire and she brings down everything with her lusty ways um and you just get the feeling that so much has been put at her door and yeah. that, that other people need to take a certain amount of responsibility for some of the incredibly bad decisions um that get made along the way I love that. I love that. I love that like you say getting to kind of play with those characters that are usually given pretty short thrift and getting to give them their own stories is so much fun. And this is your second book. So, mm. you know, when you write your first book, it's a very different process. How was writing a second book? Because when you write your first one, it's very organic, right? Whereas this, there's kind of a level of expectation. Well, well, Before the Ruins was my first book to get published. It wasn't, in fact, my first book. Yeah. Um, I've been at it a while. Um, but it, it was a very different experience writing this second book because I had a deal. So there was yeah. a deadline. Um, and so my first book, writing Before the Ruins, was um, it was sort of my last shot at it, really, because, you know, writing a novel takes a huge amount of time and you kind of have to turn down lots of things. And I didn't, I'd, I'd been trying for a while, so I kind of felt... This was my last shot. There was a lot riding on it. Um, I was also doing about three other jobs at the same time. Um, so it took quite a while. Um, and I think the material was quite different. The material was quite personal. It was, some of it was quite dark. Um, and I really laboured over it because, as I say, I, I thought it might be my last shot. This book was much more of a joy to write. Um, and it is much more of, I think it's a reaction to the last book. The last book was first person a little bit slower, a little bit darker, definitely. This book, it's kind of, one of the things about the Arthurian legend is it, it's a big soap opera. Yeah. Um, so I've got like a load of characters. I kind of, maybe it was to do with writing under lockdown where we were denied all these pleasures of drinking and dancing and fighting and meeting up and and all this kind of, it kind of burst out in the book. So um, I wrote it in a, slight panic because I had this uh, deadline um because Serpent's Tale and I had agreed that I would hand it in on a certain day um <laughs> but also I think it was I also because they bought the book unseen I kind of knew they had to take it yeah. so I was kind of it was a little bit carte blanche like well I'm just gonna have a go um and I thoroughly enjoyed writing it and I think that really tells in the reading I think some people have said to me they there's only a few people have read it yet um, and some people say they they preferred the first book, but a lot of people have said this is it's a ride, and uh, yeah. that's what I wanted it to be. It's a lot of it's fun to read. It's a lot of fun to to go through, and it is like a telenovela. It's it's you never know yes. what's going to happen next. It is. I really love. Um, there's a director, uh, the German director Fassbinder, who I absolutely love, and I love that he tries to take these very kind of popular forms, although he's obviously in in film, but. Um, and fill them like these melodramas uh, and then fill them with um, subversion. Um, yeah. And so I was trying to take this big kind of soap opera form and, uh, and then subvert it. Really well. 
And you know, the big question as well, and I, I know you probably can't tell me very much, is but what comes next for you? This book's obviously imminent, but I know as a writer, it's always kind of on to the next thing. What's your next project? It is so I think I kind of I think I've worked out what it is I'm trying to do. Um so before the ruins, the first book, it was I I tried to take pretty much a, an Agatha Christie, you know, the country house murder. Yep. Um and I tried to give it like a a retelling, a reworking that um, satisfied the part of me that wanted that kind of mystery. But for me, Agatha Christie's don't satisfy some parts because the characters aren't, they have no realism. There's no psychological yeah. depth to them. So with this, again, I wanted to take something that was very established in this, in this idea, like an Arthurian legend. And again, give the characters psychological depth and realism. Um, and make them uh so we have both kind of the the action that i always enjoyed um reading as a kid but also psychological depth and um a bit of a wink to the camera a bit postmodern kind of uh oh. yeah acknowledgement of what was trying to be done and so the new book um oh i suddenly forgotten what i'm actually writing no <laughs> so i am writing something it's uh it's it's a little bit of a take on so the different different genre this time it's not murder mystery it's not legend it is a bit of sci-fi but um oh. it's sci-fi if you think of julia armfield's our wives under the sea loved yeah you know which is which has definitely got like a, an element of you know someone's been down uh to the bottom of the sea and they've come back a bit different but yeah. it's also a book about grief and loss so this is also it's got a sci-fi element to it it takes place over a hundred years. Wow. Um, so we start off in Brittany in 1926. So two families there, one Austrian, one British. Uh, and it's only, you know, uh, um, eight years after the end of the First World War. Um, and these two old school friends are meeting in in, in Brittany, France, uh, in the hope that they're both going to do some business together because the families have both fallen on slightly hard times. But there's a lot of um, stuff that's under the surface because uh, we've got an Italian chauffeur who fought in the white war. We've got um, Henry Richmond who fought in the trenches. Um, we've got the Austrian uh, father, uh, Thomas Mosner, who um, had a desk job. Uh, so, so there's a lot of tension going on, but then there's also two children and they find something strange on the beach. And that's oh. the beginning of it. But we're going to be all over the place because we are going to follow the children it's going to move through time so the beginning is in Brittany in France but then the next time we meet them it's going to be in England in the in the mid-1930s and then so oh. we're going to forward quite quickly yeah oh I'm intrigued that sounds that sounds like my cup of tea I love a good mystery and I love a little bit of sci-fi thrown in there that sounds a lot of fun and I was reading a little bit about you before we dive into this novel evening and you're a bit of a globetrotter so you've obviously lived many different places and uh, you mentioned that you lived in Berlin, Koal, and you've done quite a lot of work there. I, but I presume you've set up, uh, is it a writing programme out there? Um, so in 2011, I started something called The Reader Berlin. I think when I started it, my idea was going to be that I would do manuscript assessments because I'd been doing a bit of manuscript yeah. assessment for a few writer friends and they said, well, you should you should offer this professionally. Um, so I, I set up a website and then I thought, well, I'll just try and see if there's any interest in a, an evening class. Um, so I had a friend who ran a secondhand bookshop 
And she said, well, you can use the cellar. So I started an evening class and very quickly it, it really took off. So I started to get all these other writers who I knew to, to teach evening courses and poetry and script writing. Um, and then we had weekend um, workshops. So we'd get visiting authors coming over from the UK to, to lead workshops for us. We had a literary festival, literary events. Um, and I did that for yeah, about 10 years. And then I handed it over ooh, about a year, year and a half ago wow. to Sharon Merton. She's very brilliant and has been running it. And uh, since last October, I've been living full time back in the UK, although with plenty of visits home to Berlin. To my other home. Now, I'm hoping that all of your travels maybe might influence our location for our novel evening a little bit. Absolutely. Ah, okay, fabulous. I was hoping you were going to say that. <laughs> I haven't travelled as much as I would like, so I'm now going to live a little vicariously through you. So to kick things off, the most important question for your novel evening is where are we going to go? Um, I thought about this long and hard. Uh, I love to travel. So there's a few places that occur to me um there's an I, I live, do live an island um an island location so I was thinking um maybe there's a little island um it's kind of a peninsula really uh, called Salinas off uh, northern Brazil I was thinking about an island off Sumatra called Pulaway but in the end I wanted to go for I think the muse um the conditions are always perfect in Greece and I find Crete the island um just such an inspiring a magical, magical place. I think you've always the feeling there, that the, especially in the White Mountains in the Southwest, that's where uh, the Greek gods are still running wild. So um, I think we'll choose maybe an olive grove Ooh. by the Agios Pavlos kind of region. So there's a, a beach um, I know that you have to walk to. There's no, uh, you can't, you can get a boat to it or you can walk to it. There's no road there. And there's a little old church called Agios Pavlos and there's one little restaurant um, and they bring all the food in by boat. And I think there are some olive trees there. And I think that's where we're going to go. So Ooh, you can hear you the sound the of the food's coming by boat. What, what are we eating? That's um, I think, well, we'll have lots of um, lots of Greek delicacies. So fresh fish out of the sea, maybe a goat's defada, that's a lovely goat stew, um, uh, a Svakian cheese pie. Yeah, I love those. And then all the wonderful... Um, uh, local olives and fruits and grapes and they also do some really fantastic little desserts out there too so I know we're going to eat really well lots of um, roast roast vegetables as well yeah it's going to be yeah good food I went to Greece last month what month to be on might have been the month before now but um, I was actually in Rhodes, which obviously sadly is having all the horrendous absolutely. wildfires. Actually, in the resort that I was in in Kiatari, which was absolutely beautiful. It was such a lovely place. Um, so it's so so sad. But there's nothing quite like a Greek evening when it like the sun's just gone down. It's still warm, but there's like a breeze. There's something about it. There's mm -hmm. so you say when you can see the mountains, it's so magical, and you can believe that the Greek gods were overseeing that place. Yeah, absolutely. And the way, you know, the stars come out and you can, the water kind of, uh, kind of blackly kind of melting and uh, reflecting the light from the moon. Uh, yeah, it's magical. It's, uh, it's such a, Greek's actually a magical country. I absolutely approve of this wholeheartedly. Um, Greece is one of the few places I have been um, and I adore it there. So this is, this is top notch setting straight off the bat. <laughs> so 
We're sat ready to have our Greek feast. Who's the first person arriving by boat? Well, I think the first person arriving by boat is going to be Hilary Mantle. Oh, um, yeah. When my first when my first book came out before the ruins, um, we I was invited to the uh, uh, there's a literary festival at Budley Salterton, and everyone said, "Well, this is you know Hilary Mantle is the patron of this festival, and all the authors who go, you know, often she'll know finish." That. There'll be a dinner with Hilary, and I absolutely love uh, her work. Um, and I was so looking forward to meeting her. And then, of course, the lockdown happened, the oh. festival was cancelled. And very sadly, Hilary has since departed this earthly plane. Um, so I never got to tell her how much I, I loved her work. And I think she's a writer of huge power. Yeah. I think... There are some writers you feel they're not so much writing as conducting a seance for your yeah. benefit. Um, and so, you know, when you read her work, it's utterly convincing whether she takes you to the French Revolution or to Tudor London or to, you know, these uh, Beyond Black is one of my favourite of her novels. Uh, and it's sort of a you go to these various psychic fairs sort of around the M25 ring road, these sort of dingy hotels. Uh, and yeah, she's convincing and brilliant and full of power, whatever she does. So I definitely would be welcoming uh, Hillary first off the boat, I guess. Oh, amazing. I'm so close to Budley Salterton and I did not know that she was the patron of that literary festival. That's that's incredible. Um, and like you say, I think she brings whatever she's writing is so vivid and like you're there. Whoever you're following, you're right there. Um, I would have so many questions as well. I think she's she's a supreme powerhouse when it comes to writing. I think so. And she believed, I think, she talked about a couple of very strange experiences she had. Um, I think Hillary was a bit special. I think good writers are kind of, they've got their antennae and there's something that they're receiving Um from the universe uh, and she talked about meeting the devil in the garden when she was two or three years old wow and she talked about when she went through yeah um and actually went to a, a literary festival in berlin where she was sort of zoomed in again because of the pandemic and there was this very funny kind of awkward moment where the uh, moderator a german uh, gentleman was trying to ask her about this but the zoom connection kept breaking down <laughs> so we ended up sort of shouting down the zoom the devil hillary in the garden <laughs> sorry i can't, I can't really quite hear you the devil in the garden um poor hillary and and the poor moderator i mean <laughs> i felt for both of them but that and she i think when she wrote an essay about um she had some major surgery and she nearly didn't survive it and the th things that kind of the places her mind went. I just feel that she had, I think, really great writers. There's almost a psychicness about what they're doing. There's kind of an unearthly power. And I think she was plugged into the mainframe. Um, and uh, the other writer, I, I would say, who I definitely get that feeling from is Pat Barker. Oh. So I encountered Pat Barker through her Regeneration Trilogy, um, which is about... Uh, the First World War, and it's it's set around the character. Well, there's, there's a lot of main characters, but one of them, uh, or major characters, I should say, one of them is W.H. Rivers, who was a psychiatrist working at um, a Scottish um, 
psychiatric place, a home, I guess, for where men with shell shock were sent, and both Siegfried Sassoon and Wilfred Owen spent time there. And when I read, read the Regeneration trilogy and a particular character of Billy Pryor, who is a character she made up, um, and Billy's girlfriend, Sarah, again, I had that feeling of, this is a seance, you know, this is, yeah. this seems, this is more real, they, you know, than, than most writers can, uh, can bring to bear. And I think she used a lot of WH Rivers uh, will also be coming to our novel evening because he was a writer too. He was a psychiatrist and an ethnologist. He spent a lot of time in the South Seas. Um, and he also, um, uh, he, so he wrote a lot of papers. So he, and he's also a character. So is he a character or the real person? I don't care. I'd love WH Rivers to to come along because I guess I love the Regeneration Trilogy so much. And partly that's because of um, Pat Barker's depiction of Rivers as somebody who his job is to send, is to cure people enough that they have to go back and fight in the First World War. Um, and by the process of of doing so, he starts to take on the um, the symptoms of shell shock. Um, and, you know, it's, yeah, it's an, it's an incredible piece of work and I would love to meet him, uh, I think, in the real. Um, yeah, it'd be really interesting to see what he made of her, you know, interpretation of him, how she wrote him. Yeah, that could, that could cause some conflict, couldn't it? Um, <laughs> I'm not like that. Um, but yeah, he knew everyone. So I'd love to ask him because he knew all the great and the good, I think, uh, of his day. Ooh. So he could, um, he knew Robbie Ross, for example, who was Oscar Wilde's lover and also many other things. And um, he knew the guy who wrote Alice in Wonderland, um, Lewis Carroll, but whose real name was Dodgson, I think. Um, yeah. So, so he would have been a good, good person to meet. Um, but I just quickly want to mention Pat Barker also wrote people who love her work and love the Regener Regeneration trilogy sometimes don't know about another book she wrote, which is called Blow Your House Down. Ooh. And this is an incredible piece of work. I read it and I was like, how did this not win the booker? Yeah. Because Blow Your House Down, it's set in a Yorkshire town um, around the time that a serial killer is killing women. Um, oh, well, that's my cup of tea um, immediately. Mm. And so I think, you know, Pat Barker comes from up north and I think um, when the Yorkshire Ripper was, uh, Peter Sutcliffe was murdering women, um, there was a lot of very open misogyny about the kind of, uh, he murdered a lot of sex workers. Um, and she does this brilliant study in, uh, there's women, so she writes about a group of women, some of whom are sex workers, some of them long-term, some of them perhaps more, or temporarily, more recently, and um, the fear that overtakes these women um, while this serial killer is abroad. And the, but it's also a frank depiction of the general misogyny that yeah. they are, these working class women. Some of them work in a, a chicken plucking factory, are having to deal with. Um, but you know, she didn't win, Pat Barker didn't start winning awards really, I think seriously until she started writing about yeah. men. So I think, that it's really worth it if you're a fan to go out and check this book out. Oh, um, it's going on my list. As soon as you said that, Mike, I'm going to get this book. Yeah, it's it's cracking. It sounds fantastic. So we have three guests on your list and you've got some pretty, I feel like some pretty intense conversation is going to be happening here. I think you've got people who can tell stories and are interested in each other. Are you adding to this group? Yes, well, I think 
when I, I've, I've mentioned a little bit about kind of psychic power and the seance, I want I want us to be able to lure Sappho there. And oh, so for cool. that for that purpose, I'm going to invite a few more women who I think um, have like a lot of the kind of the kind of power that we're going to need to to persuade Sappho to wander down out of the Cretan mountains. I know she's supposed to be on Lesbos, but you know in, you, she, she must let her ride. You know she's going to travel. Um, yeah, for sure. So I'd also like to invite um, Angela Carter. Um, I loved uh, Angela Carter's work so much. Uh, I think I first uh, encountered it through the Sadian Women, which was a study of the Sad's uh, women. So that's a work of of nonfiction, but also I loved her fairy tales. The Bloody Chamber uh, is, you know, such a brilliant place to um, to begin reading her work. So mm. for sure. Um, Angela Carter's coming. Then who else do I want? Um, Shirley Jackson. Oh, I think Shirley Jackson uh, also had that. Uh, there's something sort of really powerful about her work, really uncanny. Um, I think that if you if you sat if we sit in a circle and we all hold hands and call on Sappho, if we've got Shirley Jackson, Angela Carter, um, Hilary Mantle, Pat Barker, I'd also like to. Um, we've got WH Rivers. He's the only chap, but I don't care. I don't think Rivers would care. Um, and the last one, I think, um, who am I going to have? Yeah, Mary Shelley. I think. Oh, oh, this is an eerie group. I love it, but this is a group that everyone's going to have some strange stories to tell when they're sat out in the Greek darkness. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes, I like it. I I like a good a good creepy story as well. If you're having a dinner. And someone's got a little bit of something that gets a bit shiver up your spine. I like that. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, with uh, with this group that uh, we can sit down, we can somehow we can raise whoever we want to talk to us. Maybe we'll, uh, we'll ask Persephone to kind of wander out of Hades and, and have a chat. Maybe we'll, uh, um, yeah, maybe Aphrodite herself. Oh, you know? you're stirring up some gods. You know how that goes when the mortals stir up the gods. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, not well in general. Maybe I should. Really not great, but they do also love a party. They do, they do, and I think uh, if Athena were to grace us, she would be very kind to uh, women like Hilary Mantle and Pat Barker, who you know, and and Mary Shelley, uh, all of them who have you know put their considerable intelligence yeah. to you know writing these brilliant stories that I think for me have so illuminated um, my life uh, and made me kind of. Um, that's what you know a good writer does they kind of shine a light um and you get to look a little bit into the darkness around you the things you can't maybe see that are a bit obscured and i think that these 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 writers uh, really do that for me anyway this is a fantastic group and this is usually where i ask if there's anybody you don't want to show up to this gathering well i think back in the day uh if you'd asked me this five years ago, 10 years ago, certainly 15 years ago, my, all the people I would have invited would have been uh, the bad boys and girls of literature. I'd have wanted the drinkers, the wild ones, so I would have invited, it would have been Baudelaire, Rambeau, Jean Rhys, Pauline Riage, Jean de Berg, Guzman, Wild, all these kind of, you know, these, these big parties. I think to be honest, Wild, wild can still come. I'd, I'd still I'd still love to meet Oscar if I could. Yeah. Um, but the rest oh, Wouldn't them, he do rest... well in this setting as well? Well, I think if any setting like that, you know, he's always going to want to shine. But I think he had a, 
I think he had a, a sensitive side to him as well. I don't think yeah. he'd have, uh, I think he'd have let other people get a word in edgeways. Yeah. I reckon. So yeah, Oscar, Oscar too. But the rest of them, uh, that hard drinking, opium smoking rabble, I think uh, they're going to have to stay home because I've been sober now for, uh, for about ne- yeah, nearly a year, but a bit longer than that. So I, I cut down quite a long time ago. Um, and I think that they would uh, they would take the party in a very different direction, uh, and uh, yeah, times have moved on. Yeah, this is a night of conversation, good food, good chats, storytelling. We don't need the opium and the <laughs> the chair throwing. We don't need any of that. Yeah, yeah, the, the drama. Those drama queens can, yeah. We don't need the drama. That's not what we need at this beautiful Greek evening at all. And I highly approve of your novel evening i can picture it so vividly as well you've really set the scene which i love um it's it's perfect i love a greek evening and these guests are phenomenal yeah i reckon so yeah i think it's gonna be a good night it really will before i let you go and enjoy the rest of your welsh evening uh i have to ask if you're reading anything while you're on your holidays um i i never come on holiday without a couple of books so I think I've got, I've brought um, the latest Kate Atkinson with me. Um, I can't remember what it's called. It was, uh, Sh- Shrines of Gaiety. Oh, um, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it's set again in the 1920s, which I'm, I'm writing about the 1920s. So I'm kind of looking for, um, I'm sort of taking a kind of cold eye at how other writers are uh, uh, sort of evoking that era. I've also got here a massive collection of short stories it's the um american short story new grant to book of um edited and introduced by richard ford so it's probably about 40 or 50 um short stories in there um oh, so i love plenty to dip into yeah so i like a yeah a little short um uh while i'm on holiday so just see what um what i can pick up as well i'm always sort of trying to look at what other writers are doing and and when I think something's brilliant, trying to work out, well, why do I think it's brilliant and how could I maybe apply that to to my own work? I love uh, that. Always read. learning, always learning. No matter how long you've been writing for, there's always opportunities to learn more as you're reading. Absolutely, yeah. Oh, my goodness. So look, Victoria, thank you so, so much. Bliss and Blunder is out in a week, <laughs> which mm-hmm. is madness. August the 3rd. Oh, I can't believe August is around the corner. This will be coming out in August. So your book will be out. It'll be let loose upon the world. It's so much fun. It's a fantastic retelling. Um, I absolutely loved it. And thank you so, so much for taking the time to chat with me. Thank you for having me, Danny. I've really enjoyed it. And it's been really nice up to the over the last few days to think about all these questions and kind of build the, the novel evening in my mind. Um, so, yeah, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Novel Evening. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I enjoyed making it. Please remember to go over and rate, subscribe and review wherever you listen to your podcasts and check us out on Instagram at A Novel Evening Podcast and over on TikTok under the same name and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.